Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I've been very excited to meet Kelvin Pierce, my guest for this episode for a really long time. My dear friend and colleague, John Atak said, Steve, you have to interview Kelvin. And uh, Kelvin, I understand you've been, you've done three episodes on John Atak's YouTube. That's a plug for his work. So I, I'm just going to start by reading a little, little something about you, Kelvin. Uh, first of all, you're a fellow author, and your book is entitled Sins of My Father, Growing Up with America's Most Dangerous White Supremacist. So... Like so many of my other guests, you were raised in an authoritarian household. Just turns out that your father was this incredibly important figure in the neo-Nazi white supremacy cult uh, that spawned other cults. Um, But after you exited at age 18, after incredible amounts of emotional abuse, physical abuse, and we'll get into that... um, We're now talking many years later, and you founded a 501c3 charitable foundation called the Divine Child Foundation that administers to orphan children in the country of Georgia. Kudos to you. So I'll just finish with the, the intro that Kelvin was raised to be a hardcore racist His father was Dr. William Pierce, a a world-renowned founder and leader of the National Alliance, one of the most well-known hate groups in the world. Kelvin's father was labeled as the most dangerous and influential neo-Nazi or white nationalist in North America by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League for over 30 years. And I already mentioned you suffered years of physical and emotional abuse from your father during while you were growing up and left home. And um, you were, you know, shared your story of rampant abuse, mental illness, and eventual recovery through the power of spiritual self-reflection and choice. And with that, I want to welcome you to the Influence Continuum and my work of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center, where we want people to think for themselves and have a conscience and use common sense and care about others and um, not be in this kind of binary of black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil, we're superior, other people are inferior, that whole mentality is so toxic. So Kelvin, give us an intro to your book because I want my listeners to get your book and and read it. Um, Well, I started the book um, as to kind of be just jotting down parts of my life just to be, um, you know, because it wasn't until I was well into my 30s that I actually started telling people who my father was, because when I was younger, I was didn't want to be associated with him. I was terrified of being associated with him and, and what he stood for. And because I was trying to make a life of my own away from him, I didn't want anybody to know. But once the Turner Diaries came out and started getting you know the infamy that it deserved, I slowly started telling the few friends that I had 
you know, who my dad was and what it was like being raised by him. And universally, I was met with, you know, the reaction of astonishment and yeah. you should write a book. And so many people said, you should write a book. You should. And so, you know, I'm not a writer, uh, you know, I'm not skilled at that. Um, but I thought that it might be important for my children um, and for other people that if I just jotted down my memoirs. Yep. Uh, but then I the 2016 election cycle uh, came upon us. And there was all sorts of sound bites that I was hearing that was taking me back to my childhood. Mm. And it made me uncomfortable and it made me um, sad. You know, I mean, I knew that racism was, you know, latent in our country and had been there for decades and decades, centuries. <laughs> mm. um, but I, I felt like we were healing or that we were making progress. And then when I saw us take a deep dive into the opposite direction, I, you know, decided that maybe I should make the book more about just my memoirs and maybe talk more about, you know, hate and how it affected me and then how I was able to eventually reprogram myself away from that. Great. And you mentioned something I forgot to say in the intro is that your father penned the Turner Diaries under a, a pen name. Was it McDonald or something Andrew like McDonald, that? Andrew McDonald, yes. Uh -huh. But this is the text that so many neo-Nazi white supremacists use for doing, you know, uh, asymmetrical warfare to destroy the government and and to uh, to promote white people over everybody else, get rid of the Jews, uh, virulent anti-Semite, I am a Jew, um, self-identify, um, even though my last name sounds like I'm a Muslim, which your dad's people hated too, I should yes. add, but. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, his book was, was labeled basically the Bible of the racist, right? And, um, you know, it's had a profound influence on our country and, you know, outside our country, too. Um, you know, it's been a big seller in Europe, uh, in the UK. Um, so, yeah. So I want to make your book a bigger seller, Kelvin. People <laughs> need to hear what it was like growing up with him. He, he was a bit of a monster. A bit, yes. Yes, indeed. It was not... Um, I mean, by the time I left home, I was severely damaged. There's, there's no doubt about that. So give my listeners a few stories of, of corporal punishment or like, what was it like growing up in the household? Um, well, I mean, when I was young, you know, my, almost all my thoughts were about my, my dad. You know, I was fascinated by him. I dearly wanted him to acknowledge me and to um, tell me that I was okay and to be proud of me. Um, but he never did any of that. I mean, we never had anything close to a normal father-son relationship. Hmm. And I wanted that desperately. And because hmm. I didn't get that and because of the way he treated me, which was, um, yeah, a lot of corporal punishment, a lot of negative psychological um, reinforcement that I was no good, that I was worthless. 
and that there was something wrong with me. Um, and so, you know, by the time you get to adulthood and you've been programmed like that for 18 years, um, you know, my thoughts were awful. You know, they were full of hate. They were full of anger. They were full of uh, utter um, self um, worth at zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I also believed that the things that my dad taught me, you know, I believed that um, Jews and non whites were responsible for the many ills of our society. And So even though he did abuse me terribly, I did believe what he taught me Mm -hmm. by the time I left home. And so I didn't broadcast my racist beliefs when I was younger, but I definitely held firmly onto them. And it shaped the way I viewed other people and interacted Mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners a little bit more about what led you to get away at 18 and and more of your recovery process. Well, okay. So first of all, when I left home at age 18, I wasn't aware that I had been abused. And I was not aware of all of the anger and the rage that was roiling inside of me. I really thought that what had happened to me was normal. And Mm -hmm. I thought that the way I felt was normal. So I left home at 18, not like trying to get away from something. I I was going towards something else. I wanted to go to the university. You know, I wanted to get an education. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. But, you know, when I went to Virginia Tech and I started meeting people from all over the world, including my first roommate was a man of color, I started being challenged. Uh, on a daily basis about my belief system. Um, You know, my first roommate was uh, a gentle man. He was very intelligent. He was a pacifist. He was uh, an environmentalist and he understood politics. And I didn't understand any of that. (laughs) And he had empathy for others. And that was a foreign concept for me. Mm. So I learned a lot from him and that's, the very first ember of, wait, maybe what my dad taught me is wrong. So the university, in a sense, created a situation where you were forced to interact with someone that you had never interacted with a a, a person of color before, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I actually lived with him. Yeah, and I'm yeah. I, so you didn't say I want a new roommate and like get me out of here, or did you have no. any of those feelings? No, I mean I pretty much thought the guy was cool from the first time I met him. That's really very t- say more because uh, you had been so indoctrinated. But the way I re- respond to hearing you say that, it's like your authentic self said, "No, he's a good person." Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. But on the other hand, I still held on to my racist beliefs very stubbornly. And, you know, when I was out in the world by myself, I mean, I was a a massive introvert. I was not sociable at all. I didn't go to parties. I didn't join frats or go out in the evenings and party with friends because I didn't really have much in the way of friends. I pretty much stayed by myself. Mm -hmm with my thoughts 
And mm. those thoughts were mostly not good. Um, so, you know, this roommate experience I had was just the tip of an iceberg of beginning the process of um, trying to heal from this. The, the first real meaningful healing and challenging of my thought process did, did not come until much, much, much later. Mm -hmm. And that was a result of, uh, you know, I was in business. I had already adopted my children. You know, typical cycle would be my wife would say something like, I need you to do something different or I need you to stop doing that. Or a client of mine would say, I don't like the way you did this. And I would take that as rejection. I would shut down. You know, I would just go back into my, you're a worthless human being. Uh -huh. You know, and that's the way I felt. And actually a peer of mine who owned a business similar to mine, but in a different area, it was like, you know, hey, Calvin, I see, I see that depression, but I see hope in you too. You need to get help. And I just scoffed at that. And he said, look, if you don't do it for yourself, your children are going to be massively influenced by your sadness as they're growing up. So if you don't do it for yourself, do it for them. Mm. And I was like, wow. You know, so I did. I sought help immediately. You know, I went to a psychiatrist. After two sessions, he said, you're depressed. Your dad was a sadist. Here's a prescription to antidepressants. You know, I went to the drugstore and picked them up. And as I was standing there and was told that, yeah, these six pills are going to cost $75. And I was just like, this is not the answer. So I gave the pills back. I said, I'm sorry, but I, I don't want these. And so I went back to my friend and I told him about that experience. He says, no, that's not what you need. He said, here, here's the name of somebody that can help you. And it was a woman, uh, a spiritual based type of counselor. And I met with her and she was just like, you have very awful tapes running through your head. What we need to do is erase all of them and then create new tapes that are, you know, positive, loving, self-loving. Uh, she goes, you are, you know, I told her that my divine child foundation, she goes, you are the divine child. And we are going to get you to believe that. And it was through working with her that I was able to challenge my belief system and to reprogram the way I thought about myself. Mm -hmm. And I learned that I had a choice in regards to my thoughts. Right. You know, if you have these awful thoughts running through your head, you don't have to touch them. You don't have to attach yourself to them. You can say, no, I don't want to go there. And then you can replace them with better feeling thoughts. And that was absolutely crucial toward my healing was to recognize unhealthy mind patterns and to let go of them and then replace them with healthy mind patterns. Yeah, exactly. But you, you mentioned anger uh, earlier in your journey and then it went to depression and sadness, but they're two parts of a, a powerful emotional state. But as you yeah. said, you know, you were not told loving, encouraging messages, uh, you know, at home. No, I was basically asked the same question over and over and over again. And that question is, Calvin, what is wrong with you? And so after a certain period of time, you start wondering, yeah, what, what is wrong with me? 
you know, why am I so worthless? You know, so it so makes me angry for you to think about, yeah. you know, that scene where your your parent is saying that. It's the it's so toxic. Yes, yes, indeed. And I just, you know, I'm just extremely fortunate that, you know, I happened upon, you know, this this healing path because I, you know, I could have lived the rest of my life like this. Mm. You know, and I could have gone the other way too. You know, because of my belief system and because of that depression and that anger, you know, people are looking for something to identify with. And it's it would have been very easy for me to identify with a white supremacist group and say, yeah, let's go with it. Oh, I'm um, sure that's what your father w wanted you to do. And the fact that you weren't being zealous to recruit and adore him, then he was like, what's wrong with you? Kelvin, yeah, that you're maybe, not doing. Yeah. But like there, I guess the there other... was something in my heart that, you know, it, it just wasn't part of who, who I am or what I want to be. That that's my that's my take. I really believe deep in my heart that people are born, um, you know, with an authentic self that wants love, that wants truth, that wants safety, that wants nurturance. And and when when one doesn't get that, a healthy sense of self doesn't form, because in the very early first few years, the child wants to feel adored, right? and paid attention to, and their needs. Absolutely, you know. And 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 I can also say that there there are so many people I've worked with over forty seven years who were born in these authoritarian cults or families didn't get the love, didn't get the security, the consistency, were neglected as well as beaten. But having having um, their own children provides an incredible healing opportunity to give to the child and self-heal by, you know, doing those types of, you know, healthy things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my two daughters are absolutely without a doubt that two greatest gifts I've ever received in my life, yeah. you know? And the reason why I adopted is because I refused to have my own kids. I did not want to take the chance that, A, that if I had my own kids, that I would produce somebody that felt the way I used to feel, or hmm. B, maybe I was going to be a father like my father was. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why when we adopted I insisted on having girls because my father had two boys and he abused them both. But he also had a niece or a couple of nieces that were girls. And he was incredible with them. He would get down on the floor with them. He would play with them. He would tickle them. And he never, not one time ever did that with me or my brother. And so I was like, well, maybe it's boys. I had no idea. I wasn't willing to take the chance, though. It was unconscious, but apparently your wife was willing to not have biological children with you because. Well, it just so happened that it was a, a very fortunate coincidence that one of the first things she told me when we were talking about family planning, she goes, Ever since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated with the idea of adoption. So that was a match on that yes, level. Yes, it was a match for sure. <laughs> and I have to imagine, you know, having a woman 
want to spend her life with you and raise kids with you is also very healing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the challenges that, that we have faced together certainly has forced me to really take a hard look at some of my beliefs and the way I, uh, you know, acted in a lot of different situations, mm -hmm. which because of my beliefs, I did not act well in a lot of situations. You know, whenever I feel like I was being rejected, you know, I would shut down. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my wife hated that because she would be like, let's talk about it. You know, what's going on? I want to know what you're thinking. You know, you're a mystery to me. And I would shut down and not talk. And that was extraordinarily frustrating for her. Mm-hmm. I bet. All I can say is it's a journey. And, <laughs> um, you know, uh, there, there are good couples therapists who can, you know, help people recover from their childhood wounds and can teach skills and, and offer exercises and other types of, of um uh, skill building and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've yeah. learned a lot and changed a lot on the way I do and the way I react and the way I feel about myself. Yeah, and I've I've befriended several people who were recruiters into neo-Nazi, white supremacist, anti-Semitic groups. And they all describe how hard it was to live with so much hate and also very positive experiences as you were sharing with your first roommate, for example, where people were so nice to them and they really had a hard time hating them when yeah. people were being so genuine and warm and yes. kind. Uh, do you happen to know Arno Michaelis by any chance? No, I do not. I know that your father was involved with uh, recruitment music, you know, bands oh, and yeah. whatever. Yeah. And he, Resistance he had, records. Mm -hmm. he had his own band, white power band, recruiting people into the cult of white supremacy. And he talked about how uh, his boss at, at one of his jobs, uh, who was Jewish, noticed he didn't have any lunch and he offered him half a sandwich and it was like, he's being nice to me for no reason. And why should he? Because I, he saw all the tattoos all over his body with the swastikas, et cetera. And, but, or, or the black woman at McDonald's that was warm and smiling and serving him. And, and when, I think it was when he had a daughter, he was like, I don't want to raise my child like this. Like, this is toxic. Yeah. I mean, my first rule was if I do everything opposite of what my father did, then maybe I will turn out okay as a father. But, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry I for laughing. But no, seriously. You got to um, do what you got to do. You yeah, know, it was dysfunctional. So the opposite of dysfunction must be functional. <laughs> right. I had a similar experience with my first boss as an aerospace engineer working for the Navy. Uh, his name was Jonah Ottensasser, and he was an Orthodox Jew, and he was my direct supervisor. And I tell you what, over the years that I worked with him, he was kind. He was a mentor. He was nurturing. Uh, he was 
everything that my father said Jews were not. Mm. And he, you know, it was a powerful influence on my life that, yeah, you know, my dad is completely wrong. You know, this mm. guy doted on his family. His religion was extremely important to him, but he openly accepted others, you know, without judgment. You know, he was always kind to people, nurturing. Yeah, he, he definitely had a powerful influence on me. So I didn't realize you were in the military. If well, you... I was an aerospace engineer working for the United States Navy. I worked for the I Naval see. Air Systems Command, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, your father was very bright, and you're very bright. And he was educated, and you were educated, but you've made something really positive um, with your life. I like to think so. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So um, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, okay. So if if somebody's listening to this and they've been getting recruited into a white supremacist, you know, anti-Semitic thing, what would you want to say to them? Well, I guess I, what I would do is I would ask them a question and, and I would ask them, you know, does that hate, does that feeling of um, superiority over others, um, does that really feel good? And, you know, how do you really feel about yourself? Because I know for a fact that if you hate others, it's because deep down inside you're hating yourself. And so I would challenge them to take a deep dive on the inside mm. and to ask yourself, why do I really feel this way? Instead of trying to project that hate or that feeling of unworthiness onto others, mm. because certainly it's a temporary fix. You know, you do have a momentary feeling of I'm better than that person. Mm -hmm. uh, I identify with other people that feel like we're better than those people, but, you know, it's kind of an addiction. Um, and just like drugs and alcohol, it could feel good at first, but ultimately it's chronically damaging to your health. And so, yeah, I would definitely challenge you to really take an honest look inside mm. and ask yourself, why do I hate these people? Why do I feel this way? Mm. That's great. And I don't, know how much you know about my approach, but I basically recommend asking respectful questions that make people really think about things and have mm -hmm. a new perspective on things and get in touch with feelings that may be suppressed um, and to encourage people to reality test. Um, so I'm, I'm just imagining a scene where there's a you know a white supremacist. I'm standing there, and Kelvin walks, you know, into that frame, and I get to say, you know, to him, "Have you ever heard of the Turner Diaries?" And he's like, "Yeah." <laughs> Do you think it's great? Oh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. Tim Timothy McVeigh, you know, used it when he bombed the, you know, Oklahoma City, you know, uh, federal building. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you know who Kelvin is? <laughs> you know, no, who's Kelvin? 
Well, do you know who actually wrote the Turner Diaries? Do you know the name of the man who actually was the author of that novel? I, I'm assuming they'll know Pierce. Maybe not, but I would assume they know. Yeah, most um, likely. Right? And then I'm like, meet his son. You yeah, know? And, you know? And, and give you the setup to then ask the question. Yeah. You, you know? know, I was pretty concerned at first about putting myself out there, you know, how I was going to get treated by, you know, my dad's admirers. And, um, you know, I've definitely gotten some feedback, but for the most part, it's been more or less respectful, even though, you know, they completely disagree and they claim that I'm, you know, oh, he's just writing a book so, so the Jews will pay him money. He's just doing it for the money. You know, oh, it's a hit job 20 years too late. Yeah, well, talk about the money. <laughs> I, yeah, I've made absolutely nothing on this book. I wrote this book to get opportunities to speak because mm -hmm. I feel like that's where I have the opportunity to help people not by them reading my book, but by them saying, hey, maybe this guy has something to offer to someone that might be feeling the way I used to feel. And then if I can help that person, that's my goal. Mm -hmm. Yep. I get the same accusations, by the way. I'm only doing this for 47 years to make money or because I need to be famous. And I'm like, I would rather be doing anything but this, and I could make a lot more money than doing this. Yes, but indeed. this is my passion because I got recruited into the Moonies cult, and I became a right-wing fascist that was ready to kill on command and die on command and wow. kill all the non-believers. And when I nearly died in a van crash and then you know had the... A confrontation with my dad who cried and said, how would you feel if it was your son who met a group of controversial people and dropped out of college and disappeared from your life? And I could see he genuinely was concerned about me. I said, I'd probably be doing what you're doing now, but you've been brainwashed by the communists. And he's oh like, well, <laughs> just listen to them. These former Moonies, just listen to them. If you want to go back after a few days, I'll drive you there myself, but at least your mother and I will be able to sleep at night knowing we did the responsible thing. So for me, I wanted to prove I wasn't in a cult and I wasn't brainwashed, that I knew what I was doing. But thankfully, when I learned about Chinese communist brainwashing and 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 um, listened to the ex-members tell their horror stories, I found myself listening to them and then thinking, oh, I have much better stories than that of abuse. Oh my gosh. But it was like surfacing it in my head, mm -hmm. right? But at the point that I, I realized Moon was a liar, he couldn't have been the Messiah, he's not a man of God, he's not anyone, he's not the perfect parent, the true father of humankind. I just cried and I was like, how could I have believed this? Like, what happened to me? And it was like somebody opening up a shades in a dark room and the sun comes in. That's what it felt like to me. It was wow. like, what happened to me? 
And then wow. I just wanted to read and learn about psychology and understand persuasion and brainwashing and mind control. And, and people who had studied Chinese brainwashing, you know, I sought them out and they're like, actually, we just studied it secondhand, but you've lived it and they did it to you and you did it to other people. So you should study psychology and explain it to us. So I was like, hmm, I like this idea. Instead of being a college dropout who's ashamed and embarrassed of being a Moni, like learning psychology and teaching a Yale psychiatrist, I could do that. Wow. But little did I know I'd be doing it for, for my whole life. It's yeah, turned I'm out fascinated to be, by psychology. Yeah. I still love to learn. I'm still fascinated and I love to talk to interesting people like yourself and, and share the journey. And as your father influenced so many people to do harm, to do, you know, to think narrowly and to think, you know, uh, in a, um, uh, su you know, superiority, you know, get rid of all the others that aren't like us and we're the best. I think promoting people like yourself and your book and your experience um, is a healthy role model for the public. Yeah, thank you. And I want anyone who's listening to this, if you were born or raised in an authoritarian family or group, I say, if Kelvin can do it, you can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this man and read his memoir and 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 understand that you can do good and 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 rewrite the 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 self messages the 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 programming. Yes, and, and, yes, indeed. And love yourself and admire yes, you yourself. Yes, you can choose to love yourself. Absolutely. Yep. It's not an easy choice when you've you know come from that kind of background, but. You know, if it's something you really want to do and you have the discipline to keep working at it, you can do it for sure. Yeah. So I want to share with you a, a, a healing strategy. I'm a mental health professional. I was taught this by Daniel Brown, a forensic psychologist who wrote a book on attachment repair. Uh, and, uh, and and so the tech, it's incredibly simple technique, but I would like to share it with you, if I may, and my listeners um, the idea is to go back to a traumatic moment in one's childhood. And then the therapist asks, uh, I'd like you to imagine the ideal mother and the ideal father uniquely suited to your personality and what you would have wanted them to say or do instead. Wow. You know? Wow. Pick a specific traumatic event, go back, imagine the ideal mother and the ideal father and rewire that traumatic event to be a loving, nurturing. So I'm going to give you a quick, quick example in my training. Dan showed me a, a woman who had a nightmare apparently when she was eight and screamed out in the middle of the night. And in reality, her parents told her to shut the F up or they'll come in and kick the S-H-I-T out of her. So Dan said, you know, I want you to imagine, you know, you have this nightmare and the ideal mother and ideal father. 
So this woman is like, oh, they'd immediately come in and turn on the, you know, the lamp. And my mother would hug me and say, oh, honey, it was just a nightmare. Daddy and I are here for you. And she would rock me back and forth. My dad would sit at the base of the bed and tap my leg. I'm here for you too, honey. And then my father would go to the kitchen and warm some milk and bring back some chocolate chip cookies while my mom would sing me a lullaby. And she did this beautiful healing scene for herself. And the, the goal is to make that the default memory. She still remembers what actually happened, but yeah. now she has a new default memory of this loving, nurturing, safety, healing experience. And by doing this technique over and over and over again, you create healthy mother and healthy father in your head. I can totally imagine that. Yeah, and you can you can literally remake because we know we have neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. You know, we we can rewire our neurons uh, the way we want with an internal locus of control based on our healthy, authentic self, and it really works. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, of course, it's great if you have a therapist who's trained in this protocol, but honestly, I've been telling people just what I shared with you. And mm -hmm. they're like, that's great, I'm gonna do it. And they report really incredible results. But it's, you gotta know what you gotta know in order yeah. to understand you know, the, the simplicity of it. But deep down inside, people know what they want. They want love, they want yes. security, they want safety, they want self-esteem. They wanna know that they're loved and special, that they're good, that they're smart, that they're yes. capable. Yes, indeed. And uh, and pass it on, right? <laughs> and that's why I'm saying this on the podcast and wanting to share with people, you don't need to be walking around with these chains of trauma from one's childhood. One can really climb out of that. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, another healing experience that I've had is with this um, charity that I founded 15 years ago, the Divine Child Foundation. So when I first started going over to Georgia and working with these orphans, you know, these kids were not in a good situation at all. You know, they had been put in this institution and um, it's basically a ragtag bunch of kids age five through 16. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I kind of had this vision of going in there and the kids will all be happy to see me and I'm going to help them and help their life be a little bit better. And, you know, but when you first went in there, the kids were like scowling at you, you know, they were angry, they were depressed. And, you know, my first immediate reaction was like, Oh, oh, rejection, rejection, you know, and they won't even look at me. Um, but then, you know, I was just like, wait, 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 this is not about me. This is about them. Mm. And so I just made it a goal right there to try to break through to each one of these kids and to let them know that there was at least one person on the planet that loved them, regardless of who they were or where they came from. And I just started that by trying to make eye contact with them and smiling and just 
looking at them and smiling and being really gentle and calm and friendly. And one by one, those barriers all came down. But at the same time, as I was giving that love out, it was like I was also giving it to myself. And so it really was a gradual increased healing process for me just doing that and recognizing and knowing it wasn't about me and having the capability that I never had before mm -hmm. to overcome that and say, I'm going to love you no matter what. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, extremely powerful. Yeah. And I'm a, an adoptive parent myself. I just, my wife and I adopted a 22-month-old from uh, what is now Russia, but was Crimea at the time. And, um, you know, the, the, they had plastic potties in a row, no, no diapers because they had no money. The kids were all hungry. And, um, you know, your heart goes out to it and, and you want to adopt more than one. But, you know, we were older parents, you know, I was 50, and uh, it was like, let's do one. And and we had hired a Russian pediatrician to review the medical records, and she's like, don't adopt this child. He's got fetal alcohol issues and all these really severe problems. And my wife and I had already, you know, bonded with him, and we're like, we're going we're gonna to go for it. Wow. And it's, it's, you know, being a parent is a profound responsibility, but it's also one of the things that has helped me to grow as a human being yeah. and appreciate yeah. humanity and appreciate, you know, uh, and, and you get to relive your childhood. <laughs> you, yes. you mean, you're, you, you, you do get to do, my father was a workaholic, so I saw him on Sundays and I would say goodnight to him at night. During my early years, I'd see him on Sunday, but I got to like spend a lot of time with my kid and, um, you know, hold his hand, take him to the aquarium, to, you know, to go on these, you know, all these journeys and meet people and first time experiences. It's I just so precious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. They're grown now. Um, but yeah, coaching them and just playing with them and, I mean, before I became a parent, I could not get down on the floor and play with another child mm -hmm. because I was so self-conscious that I didn't know how to interact with other children. I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But when I had my own children, it, it, I don't know, it was like it just came natural and I didn't feel that way anymore. And, and then all of a sudden I was able to then interact with other children that weren't not mine because... I just felt like I knew how to do it and how to make them feel comfortable and at ease. And, and I love it. Yeah, it's marvelous. I have to confess, uh, we got a lot of coaching. Like, Steve, oh, yeah. get down on the floor and be eye level with your, <laughs> you know, 25-inch yeah. tall little munchkin, you know? Yeah. Or lift him up. So you have that eye contact, et cetera. I mean, and and he had eating disorders. He had a million disorders. And it's like, your job is to put the food in front, you know, not to force him to eat. You can eat in front of him and make it into a game and, you know, play wow. airplane and all that kind of stuff. But just 
we needed a lot of help, but we were fortunate in getting that help That's and advice. good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, My daughters were three months old when we adopted them. So, that's and they, you know, great. they had some issues too. Yeah. But Yeah, it was, but, yeah. but it's Incredible. the earlier, the better in terms Yes. of attachment um, Yes. protocols. So uh, it's really, really great. Um, so I take it your foundation continues to this day? Yes, I just got back from Georgia a little over a week ago. So tell our listeners more about it. Maybe we can get some donors to help you um, in your... Um, well, it's called the Divine Child Foundation. And so we started with just working with one orphanage. Uh, went over there uh, with my wife in 2007 after we'd gotten everything set up and legal status and a board of directors and So we went over there in January of 2007, and we said, we're just going to visit every orphanage that we can find in the country. So we spent two weeks driving all over the country, visiting every orphanage we could find. And um, we said, we're just going to choose the one that we feel like is the best fit for us. And Hmm. we did that. It was a unanimous decision between me and my wife and our driver and our translator. Okay. And so we just started working with that orphanage. It was about 45 kids and it was in an old abandoned schoolhouse had 98 windows and maybe three of them were left intact Oh boy. all the rest were broken there was no heating system there was no running water no flush toilets um the electrical system was terrible the roof leaked we completely rebuilt the entire orphanage and replaced all the windows and doors and repaired the roof put in a heating system put in running water, flush toilets, and did, you know, administer to those kids for several years and saw them come into a family under the guidance of a fantastic director. Um, and then the Georgian government decided that they wanted to deinstitutionalize their children. So instead of having kids in these really big orphanages, they worked with the USAID And they would purchase large residential homes in outlying villages. And then USAID would remodel them into children's homes that would have no more than 10 children per home. And they would set them up in like a family type structure. And they asked uh, the Divine Child Foundation to run two of these homes. And we agreed. And then about a year later, they said that one of the, another organization like us was going bankrupt and wanted us to take on those two homes. So we agree. And then a few years after that, they came to us and said, we want to start deinstitutionalizing severely disabled children. And my first reaction to that was, no, I do not want to do that. I had a phobia about, you know, severely disabled children, like, you know, people with cerebral palsy or, you know, severe spinal birth defects where they couldn't walk or they were basically just, you know, no bone structure below the waist, things Mm. like that. But my director was like, I can do this. I can do this. And I, you know, for about a year, we were back and forth. And I'm like, no, we can't do this. She's like, yes, we can do this. So finally we agreed. And so that house opened up about four years ago. And I was there the day they brought the children in. And I was scared and I still had that phobia and, um, you know, none of the kids could walk. Uh, the most they could do for their self-mobility was basically to move themselves around on their elbows. 
Mm. Um, and a lot of them, you know, couldn't communicate. They couldn't talk. And mm. uh, I just kind of stood back and watched as they were brought into the house and put into their separate rooms. And then one child uh, was in the playroom and I just decided to go in there and I got down on the floor with her and started playing with her with a little ball. And that phobia just evaporated. And mm. now it's one of my favorite houses to visit when I'm in Georgia. Mm. Um, so we take care of those kids in those houses. Um, but we also have a lot of graduates, you know, you know, we've been doing this for 15 years now. And a lot of these kids have reached the age of 18, which in, in, in Georgia, they have to leave the, the mm. orphanage system mm. and they have no place to go. So, mm. you know, we've made it our mission to take care of them and get them on their feet and get them training or education or housing. Um, so half of our work is with our graduates and half of our work is with the kids that are still in the system. And then about three years ago, uh, the Swiss government offered us a grant to open a counseling center for at-risk youth, like teenagers that were heading toward the criminal justice system to take these kids away from the you know, the jail and instead get them psychological counseling and vocational training and hopefully redirect them into making better life choices. Mm-hmm. So we opened that three years ago and now we've just opened a second one in Western Georgia. It's called the Compass Center, but it does that kind of training. Most of the kids are brought to us by the Georgian government, but some of the kids are brought to us by their parents when they see what's happening and they're afraid for, you know, wow. their, their children's future. I'm so um, impressed by what, so that's what we do, what you've done. Um, wow, good for you. Yeah, um, it's um, incredibly rewarding experience. I have a lot of friends in Georgia now, and uh, I really like going over there and spending time with the kids, and um, you know, just getting to know them and to help them with what they need. So, tell me, what was the connection with Georgia in the first place? Because when I think about, you know, because that's where I adopted, uh, you know, we adopted our two daughters from, was from Georgia, and then I mean, we went to Ukraine because we were older parents, and a lot of places we were told want want. You know, we actually started in Ukraine. Uh-huh. And that's and we were going to do a sibling group because we decided we wanted to have at least two children, but we didn't want to go through the adoption process more than once. So we mm-hmm. wanted to adopt two at the same time. Mm-hmm. This was in 1995. And at that time, just as we were ready to to finalize the adoption, Ukraine closed the country because of corruption issues. Mm-hmm. And they said they needed to rewrite their adoption laws to make Mm. sure there wasn't going to be corruption. And so our adoption agent we were working with had just started a brand new program in Georgia where you could get infants. And we were like, oh, yeah, you know, because we were scared to death about attachment disorders. We've heard a lot of horror stories. Right. And so we jumped at the chance. And there's a lot in my book about that. It was a nightmare experience, but we got lucky. Uh, Mm. It actually worked out. Um, but then, you know, 16, 17 years ago, a friend of mine gave me an article about orphans in Georgia and it just brought everything back. And then at the dinner table that night, I was just like, Hey, you know, we should figure out a way to help these kids. 
to give back for the gifts that we've received. And that's how the idea of the foundation started. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, Kelvin, I want to direct you to my website to a blog with Joyce Pavo, P-A-V-A-O, who is one of the world authorities on adoption. And before I adopted Matt, we adopted Matthew, I did a training with her and she herself was an adoptee and she's been championing a shift from um, parent-centered adoptions to child-centered adoptions and 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 challenging uh, wanting to have open records so the adoptees could find their birth parents more easily. Yeah, I have found both of my daughter's birth parents. I've befriended them and then uh, eventually have taken my daughters over there and introduced them to their yeah. birth families. Very it's, powerful experience. It, I, absolutely. And in our case, Matthew's parents are in russian war territory at the moment and uh um but we were also advised it's on his timetable not ours for encouraging you know connections but we were i was told by joyce get as much information as you can about the family how to contact them and and siblings and other things like that which, yeah, you know, which no, is... I agree with her. I mean, I knew these families and befriended them and visited them every time I was in Georgia for years before I told them about my daughters. Because, you know, when I asked both of these families if they had given birth to these kids, they said no. Interesting. Yeah. They denied that these children ever existed. Of course, that changed pretty dramatically with. <laughs> Their children were standing in front of me, and I said, does this such and such date ring a bell to you? <laughs> so, yeah, it was um, very dramatic, for sure. Yeah, uh, there's so many wonderful children needing a home and needing care, and there's so so many politicized, you know, things around, you know, uh, you know, having children, etc. But it's like, there's so many great kids. And, you know, if you want to be a parent, there's a child that you could love, and will love you back. And um, it's it's such a win win. Yeah, definitely Um, the greatest gifts I've ever received. Yeah, but you want you want to do it with your eyes open, too, because it's a lot of work. Indeed. And a lot of expense. So circling back, we have just a few more minutes as we wrap up. Um, Any other last thoughts or messages you'd like to share with the public about Um, all the the stuff that's happening? The other aspect of my healing really was reading. I did a lot of reading about the nature of thoughts and, um, you know, things like, you know, authors such as Eckhart Tolle, um, Byron Katie. Uh, I love a book uh, written about Buddhist psychology by Jack Cornfield called The Wise Heart. Um, Those kind of things, when I read them, Mm -hmm. it just like resonated with me. Every time I read just even a paragraph, I just automatically felt better no matter what was going on in my life. So Mm. reading about that kind of stuff, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the true nature of our thoughts and the fact that we have a choice, Mm. that that made a big difference in, in my life as well. Yep. Great. 
So uh, continued success with your foundation. Do you think about doing any more writing uh, since there's such um, a resurgence of anti-Semitic violence, you know, horror stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm considering retiring, you know, in the next couple of years, and that could be a project for sure. Mm -hmm. I've had people suggest it to me. Yep. Well... It's a journey, but again, you're a role model of, of a healthy, uh, you know, ending story to a terrible beginning story. Not that you're anywhere close to ending, but uh, you know what I mean, that you, yes. mm -hmm. you pulled yourself out of that and uh, renounced it and, um, you know, redefined yourself and your, your found self-love and self-acceptance and, and and had a very rewarding life it sounds like to yes, me indeed. so congratulations kelvin pierce thank you, thank you very much it's my pleasure pleasure meeting you Stephen. great pleasure is mine that's it for today's episode of the influence continuum i've been your host dr Stephen hassan theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.